My name is Anoop Sastry and I play drums. I've played for numerous metal artists mainly. And uh, I make, I started off making YouTube videos. Um, and that's pretty much how I got into the whole touring cycle and yeah. Nice. Yeah, that, I didn't realize that when I first hit you up that you like originally were, I guess what you would say is like a YouTube drummer. And then you, that got you on a tour with like Jeff Loomis or something, right? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. It was yeah, his, uh, one of his label guys hit me up on SoundCloud out of all places. And it just kind of went from there, you know, like it, the weird thing is I didn't have any videos of me playing his material. I just had videos. Yeah. Uh, and they were super bad, super bad quality, right? Like everything was bad. So it was just one of those things where uh, I was able to kind of make it like a resume. Yeah. And, you know, I guess what better way to see what musicians you want to tour with if you can just watch them record a song, right? So, yeah. Yeah, it just kind of snowballed. So, <laughs> so, so before that, where did, did you have any, like, I guess, I don't want to call it success, but like, I guess, like, successes in the music world? Or was it like you were just a, a, um, a random guy on the internet posting clips and then all of a sudden you're touring? like, you know, around the country. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, pretty much. I, I was in a band before and we did a bunch of DIY stuff, which was awesome to have that experience. Just, you know, being with friends in like a, you know, an old van <laughs> driving ourselves around the country and playing in like a kitchen and like all kinds of weird stuff. Right. Yeah. So once that finished, we all kind of just like went our own ways. And me in particular, I ended up finishing up uh, a trade school for audio engineering and also ah. going to uh, community college for music theory at the same time. And the whole point of that was basically to be like, okay, I want to do music. I just don't know what, what it is in music I want to do. Right. Like I briefly worked for like a live sound company and did a couple things around DC. Yeah. Um, but again, it was, it was a thing where I would just want to surround myself with music and I would just figure it out. So it was a very unknown time. And Alex, Alex Rudinger, he, um, one of my best friends and, and, uh, you know, I was just explaining we did the internet yeah. thing. Um, he was already doing YouTube videos. So, and he had success with it because he was already touring, um, with a band called threat signal. Oh yeah. I love that band. Yeah. <laughs> so that kind of just inspired me to also want to, uh, put some content out there and just kind of see what happens. And the cool thing is I was able to meet uh, the Jeff Loomis thing happened, sure, but then I was also able to make really good friends uh, in other bands, you know, um, like yeah. Skyhawk, for example, right? Uh, we were, I like ended up flying to India and playing a festival. And I could tell like when we were all there, we rehearsed for two weeks because we were that paranoid. Yeah. But it was like, how do you make like an internet thing become like a live thing, right? So we were all just like, we have no idea what's about to happen. <laughs> let's just go for it you know um, yeah it was pretty cool it's very unknown time very cool so yeah i can imagine that that was kind of nuts and it's you know i i i knew who you were from from a couple bands before this but of course you know just to make sure i'm not like an idiot i, I stalk you on the internet a little bit to make sure i can ask you some cool stuff and uh it looked like after after you had that jeff loomis thing like you just went ham like with the amount of projects you had i don't know if i if i left the window up on the side, but there's like this list of, um, of projects you've been in that you have on your Facebook page. I mean, intervals, oh, yeah. Sky Harbor, Jeff Loomis, Marty Friedman, Chimp Spanner, uh, Monuments, Polyphia. I'm skipping some that I, I don't actually, I don't know myself, but then you've worked in, in engineering for like Matt Helpern, Scale the Summit, um, and then Luminary, Cal of Calevra, <laughs> your solo stuff, of course. So like, yeah. I can't think of any, like anyone who has been involved in so many little projects. So like, how'd that happen? <laughs> well, that's sick. Thank you. Um, I, again, just surrounding myself with music, I guess. Um, the engineering thing was a slow grind for sure, because that is what I thought I wanted to do. Yeah. Just trying to get the bands to work with, uh, it's okay. This is going to sound really rough and I don't mean it like this in a bad way, but a lot of the bands that I would work with sometimes didn't necessarily do music 100% of the time. Right. Okay. So when you're engineering from that standpoint, there's a very like 
level of playing that you kind of have to deal with. And with that comes like a lot of work before you get to the creative stuff. Yeah. Right. So that made it really tough to want to keep pursuing because, you know, it was just so much work, especially for what you get paid. There's a lot of hours that go into that, that kind of stuff. So yeah, ideally I would have just wanted to play drums for people and that was it. Um, so I think that's part of the reason why I just kept saying yes to everything. Yeah. You know, anytime a touring opportunity came up, it was like, yep, let's do it. Let's go. And right. I think also a part of me understood that there was only like, I think a part of me understood that I was existing in a, a point in time in my life where I had the right uh, infrastructure to be able to just do that, you know, and yeah. I wanted to take advantage of it while I could. Um, so, yeah, so that's pretty much what it, like a lot of those bands that I listed, Chimp Spanner and Polyphia, for example, two, two examples right there. You know, those were just uh, fill-ins, you know what I mean? Like, uh, the oh, so I'm, I'm guessing like, like, uh, I've seen this happen on like, you know, when I go see a band live that like one drummer will like there'll be an artist that doesn't normally have a live band. And so they'll have like the, the drummer from another band will like fill in for his tour since they're on the same tour. Is that exactly. kind of what what some of those were? Yeah, so there was a tour with, um, it was Chimp Spanner, uh, Jeff Loomis, and The Contortionist. Ooh. And Contortionist is headlining, so I just pulled yeah. double duty on the tour. And same with uh, our guitar, uh, bass player for Jeff Loomis, who played guitar for Chimp Spanner. So <laughs> we would just stay on stage, you know what I mean? Like, we would just yeah. exist on stage pretty much for an hour and a half each night of that tour. And so that was pretty cool. Um and then the Polyphia thing was like a short notice. I had like, I don't know, I had like four or five days to like learn their set and go on tour and fill in oh, for wow. the last. They're a complicated weeks. band too. They're not doing like four, four verse chorus songs either. They're doing like, yeah. like progressive metal or yeah. what I don't know, like very technical band. So yeah, totally. It's cool because I toured with those guys before when I used to play in a band called Intervals and yeah. we toured together and we became really good friends. Filling in on that tour was awesome because I just, I love those guys. They're great. Um, yeah. So, yeah, but that was, I basically just got up on stage and improvised, which was like <laughs> terrifying. But yeah. Um, yeah. So anyways, just said yes to a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it makes sense. You know, if you, if you have the opportunities at the moment, you might as well take advantage of it. Cause I, I mean, I feel like it gives you a pretty dope resume, you know, and to, to kind of keep pushing yourself forward and, and, oh, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, there's a, there's a million ways. I mean, a lot of the stuff I do in this channel, I talk to people, there's a million ways where people can kind of quote unquote, make it in the music world. You know, it's like, it means something different for everyone. And some people will be in like one band their whole life. Other people do like a million different things. And, and so it's, you know, I, th I, th I thought it was dope, you know, back in the day when I saw it, it was like, I'd listen to a band like, oh, the noob's in there. And then I'd see another band. I like, oh, he's in that one too. <laughs> it was, oh, yeah. it was, uh, it was cool. Um, and I the guess mention with that, by the way, is that you know, keep in mind there's all these songs you have to learn, right? So, yeah, that just provides more uh, things for me to make content for, you know? Right. So I kind of saw it as like a a, a win win for me, you know, like I'm getting the experience, meeting more people, and then when I come home, I've just learned like a full set for this artist, so I can knock <laughs> out a bunch of videos in the time, you know. Yeah. Uh, how many videos do you have on your channel now? I don't know. I have no idea. But <laughs> it's, it's a lot. weird. Uh, there, it's been a slow progression. Like, I'm, I'm sure you can relate to this. It's been such a, like, long learning process. And it just continues, you know? Like, it's, if you look at my YouTube channel, it's almost like you can see, like, uh, just from the thumbnails, how, like, things have progressed, how, like, the studio has changed looks, how I've, like, changed lighting, changed cameras, you know? Yeah. And I still don't think I have it figured out, but from where I started, I definitely am happy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it looks really cool now with the multiple camera angles and the, the doom cover was, was sick. Uh, Thank you. That was uh, on my wife. Oh, it's your wife. That was, she did all the video stuff for that video, man. She killed it. Was, was she, wait, were you saying she was the guitarist too in that? Yeah. Oh, sick. Oh, that's, that's a pretty cool relationship. You guys both make music. That's dope. <laughs> most yeah. metal wife ever. <laughs> that was honestly all her idea. She, she was the one that was like, we should do a cover of this. And then she did all the video stuff. I did the audio and it was, we just, it was like a teamwork. We just united yeah. and did it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
So I just shout out to four spiral arms in the chat. Anoop, one of the best drummers and producers in the game. Big fan, dude. Oh, thanks, man. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I guess like there's a lot of cool things we, we can talk about. But one thing I think is really cool to bring up since we we're just talking about it is like you you literally went from like YouTuber to to all these all these advantages. Like, do you think there's anything that you know Joe Schmo? It's usually usually my fake fake name example of random person watching like you know random joe schmo can like kind of see how you did did this whole thing and kind of replicate your success or or if if you were doing it all differently um what would you do differently i don't even know see the the tough part about like having that is that conversation is that i don't actually um know how to do it today (laughs) (laughs) because when I started doing it, it was a totally different animal, like a, yeah. an absolutely different animal. And I already had like a social media thing. Um, oh, snap. My buddies from Wirethrone recorded with you. Yo, small world. From uh, Oh, nice. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, a, f- a friend of mine. Uh, do you know um, Crispin Earl from uh, the Veer Union? I don't know if. Oh man, that sounds super familiar. He said hello. I told him I was talking with you, and I guess you 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 toured with him when you were in Sky Harbor. <laughs> oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. Uh, apparently, that's uh. Yeah, I'm gonna show him this clip, and he's gonna be like, "Oh man." <laughs> no, no. Yeah, that's cool. Everybody's from yeah. Wirethorn record with you. Um, Wirethorn is sick. They actually are a band from Florida that drove all the way up to Maryland for me to engineer drums for them. So that was really wow. cool. There, uh, James Harper, one of their members, he, he works for a company called Acoustimac. That sounds so familiar. uh, Acoustic panels and stuff. Okay. Yeah. I I probably looked them up in my, you can see all the panels I have. (laughs) I probably heard of them. My, yeah. Majority of my studio is like Acoustimac and like one other company. So that was pretty good work. So, um, but I see what you mean. Like YouTube's a completely different beast nowadays than it was, you know, I don't know when, when you started uploading videos. I'm guessing since your name has like 2008 or whatever in it, that probably 2008. <laughs> That's when I graduated high school. So I don't, I don't, I don't know why I still use AS Drummer 2008. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's bad branding right there. Yeah. I was surprised too. When I looked at your link and I was like, AS Drummer 2008, man. I mean, I thought it was funny that you kind of just kept with it, but um, I was surprised you didn't change it. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know, man. There's a lot of things I should probably improve on. But see, okay, so that's that's the thing that I was saying is like social media back then. It, it was almost like when I started doing YouTube videos, social media didn't like just yeah. wasn't a thing. You know, like Instagram. Uh, I, I'm I think it probably existed. Maybe I, I honestly don't know when Instagram started, but yeah. I did not have an Instagram account when I was doing YouTube videos. You know. Um, which is just so weird to think about. Like yeah. there was a time where that was a thing, you know? And as social media kind of evolved into what it is today, I was lucky enough to have like whatever um, uh, foundation that I already had going into what it is today. Does that make sense? You know? Yeah. I kind of uh, feel this the same way. Like I've been uploading videos for forever and even though I didn't take it seriously, then it gave me like a good amount of people that already like followed my channel to when I like switched content types and started taking it seriously, that it definitely made it a lot easier than if I was starting from square one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see that you what, 35,000 subscribers, dude, that is like hard to get. Yeah. I mean, it's taken it, me 10 years. So <laughs> yeah, and I, I think a lot of people take, you know, don't really uh, understand what goes into getting subscribers on YouTube, it's very difficult, especially in yeah. day and age where social media is just designed to scroll and like scroll and keep going. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you're at 65 K now, something like that, or 85 K. I forget what it was, but no, I think I have less than that. I don't know. I thought it was 60 something. Maybe I'm wrong. 56, 56. I reversed the numbers. Yeah. 56,000. So, um, I guess in the YouTube game, like, You've been uploading, was it? That's not even much in the YouTube world, I feel like. Yeah, I mean, compared to like people like Logan Paul, you and me are like little ants in the in the YouTube world. But um, but I mean, in the music world, especially for like, I mean, we're both in very specific niches. You're making like metal drum covers and also originals. 
um, and then I'm making like music marketing content. So like if you know, yeah. we're we're both in very very specific niches. Um, yeah, that's totally true. Yeah. So I, I would imagine like the the amount of potential watchers and in, in those is a lot smaller than like I don't know cat video market or whatever whatever categories. But how long did it take you, you know, to kind of build up? Well, you can, I don't know, maybe like 10,000 subscribers on YouTube. And obviously it's going to be different than if we happen now. But do you remember like the day that you hit like 1,000 subscribers or 10,000 or whatever? No. To be completely honest, I've just never really uh, think of the numbers. <laughs> as ridiculous as that sounds, that is like the one thing I'm terrible at, man. I have, I have not paid attention to the numbers. Yeah. And I think that's probably like that's what I was, you know, before we chatted, I was like, oh man, I definitely need to like reach out to this guy after this to pick your brain a little bit because that's something I just haven't been good about. Um, so when yeah. I upload a video on YouTube, I'm not really looking too much at analytics afterwards. I might glance at it here and there, but I'm not really doing anything because I'm not looking at those numbers because I don't plan to change anything from that content I just uploaded. If anything, I'm just trying to you know, do covers of the songs that I want to do. Right? Yeah. Um, right. So, you know, if, the, if, if, if it doesn't do well, or if it's only going to do so much, then it is what it is. Right. Uh, at least right now, that hasn't been a need for me to really hyper-focus on that kind of stuff. So I couldn't even begin to tell you what it felt like to get a thousand or 10,000 subscribers. I don't even remember. Yeah. That, you know? It could have happened 10 years ago or it could have happened last month and you had no yeah. idea. <laughs> Yeah. So, so yeah. Yeah, that's cool though. I mean, that's that's kind of a nice, almost like romantic view out of it. You know, it's like you're you're gonna make the content you're gonna make, and you're making it because you like it. Um, you're not co concerned about the numbers. Which, on one hand, it's like that sounds so wonderful, but for maybe it's just because I'm so obsessed with the numbers myself that like I'm always like, you know, there's a million video types I could make. Like I I can make. The, what I try to do is everything in my channel, I try to make it things that I'm interested in. But in addition to the music marketing content, like, you know, I'm, I record music most days of the week. I'm playing with synthesizers. I could make, I used to do vocal covers. I used to do streaming lessons back in the, <laughs> back in the day. And, uh, um, so my, my thing is always like, as I figured out my content over the years, I look at the analytics and figure out, well, if I could do all of this stuff, and I like all that stuff. Maybe I could just like cut out all the stuff that doesn't really do anything for me and focus on one in terms of my channel. You know, that'll be the thing I upload. Um, and that's kind of how I ended up almost, almost doing only music marketing and business stuff now is because, you know, I could still talk about all the gear I buy, but people don't seem to care as much as when I upload um, music sure. marketing content or talk to people like you. You know, <laughs> yeah, smart. I mean, I'm, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that's what I was saying. Like with my content, it's going to be a drum cover, you know? Yeah. So I guess if I was going for uh, more views, more, more subscription, more likes, whatever the case might be, I probably wouldn't be choosing like a, a nerdy prog metal song to cover. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah, like, I, I mean, I think I've seen you do covers of, like, I think you got a Katy Perry cover that I saw from back in the day. And you have yeah. the you have the Doom cover, too. That one I can imagine yeah, would have. Yeah, yeah, that was just, and see, that's the weird thing is, like, that video did so much better than, like, anything oh. I've, you know? Yeah, it did. Holy crap. Mil over a million views now. Yeah, but, like, I, I couldn't sit here and tell you what I could do next to recreate that you know yeah that's, uh, yeah, that's a good point <laughs> I'm sure it, it would probably help you know to do another video with my wife 100 percent um you know because we i mean she again she did all the video stuff video editing right which i am not good at so yeah that was incredibly helpful and also seeing i don't know husband and wife together like playing that probably helps but it yeah it also helps that we chose doom right you know, around the release of the video game so yeah the game's awesome by the way do you have you played it no no okay it's really good <laughs> doom doom eternal it's difficult it's what i've heard it's really difficult yeah yeah it is but it's it's very like i don't know relaxing in a way 
killing demons in a video game to like the gentiest music ever. Um, but yeah. So uh, we got a couple couple questions in here that I think are good to yeah. chat about. So uh, Full Awful says, do you think playing locally is still worth it to get exposure? Yeah, I, I definitely think so. Um, I'm more so for practice these days, you know, like, I mean, <laughs> I mean pandemic aside, it's weird to say that yeah. after we just all went through, but I definitely think it's important to play locally. Um, it also depends on the genre because I'm, of course, speaking about metal. Ideally, yeah. what would happen is if you're like a metal band and you're just starting or something like that, you could hop on a show or two uh, as like the opening band for a tour that's coming through your area. Yeah. However, before the pandemic, uh, opening slots was starting to go down as it was. Tour packages mm. were just full enough and attracting enough people to the venues that it you didn't necessarily need opening bands unless maybe it was a B market and maybe the headlining band wasn't the biggest you know mm. metal band or whatever. But a lot of times that was already difficult before the pandemic. Now that the pandemic hit, I have no idea where <laughs> that foot is. You know? Yeah. Uh, because from I this is my, just my take on it. This is not like fact or anything. Promoters and venues just just got hit super hard, so they have to make money. Right. I can't imagine them wanting to book a show that has any risk at this point, right? Right. Um, so a lot of the tours you, you're probably, probably going to see come through first after things start opening back up for the music industry are bigger touring bands. And I think trying to play locally or like hop on a local tour that's coming through or something it's going to be a lot more difficult yeah that makes a lot of sense and um a bunch of questions popped in my head about the touring thing because this is, this is something you have a good amount of experience in that i have like zero percent zero experience in at all um all my sh i mean i played some shows when i was in high school but that, that was about it everything else i do is online um so the way it works um I guess I guess I have a few. So the first question is, what do what do um, you know promoters or venue owners or you know how do they decide if they're going to let a band be as part of like a show that they have? And I'm sure it works differently, but you know, do they look at like the band online? Do they look at certain certain metrics, or um, does the band have a say in it, or is it always the venue? Well, if it's a if it's a tour, obviously a lot of that stuff is set up way way ahead in advance um and basically my experience with it is that the headlining band for that tour their management and their booking will usually go over all a lot of times you might even be in in the same pool with that headlining band already if you're in your metal band because you're part of the same booking agent or right managed by the same agency you know maybe a different manager but part of the same agency yeah. so a lot of times in the metal community you're usually already in that pool and maybe the headlining band just has, you know, a band they want to take out because they just know them personally. Mm. That was the case a couple times where, uh, you know, it, just, it worked out for whatever band I was in because the headlining band we were just friends with and yeah. they knew they could take us out and we were like, you know, reliable, I guess. And yeah. had everything together and we're, you know, we were good people to be with. Right. Um, because you'd be surprised how many bands don't really have like, uh, the full on live thing figured out yet, you know? Yeah. And what I mean by that is like your guitar tones, your bass tones, or the drummer's gear, not completely, you know, like at least somewhat tuning and, and having decent symbols or whatever the case may be, even though that's expensive, I understand if they're cracked and stuff, but yeah, I guess a lot of bands don't really have that figured out, especially in metal. They can get away with a lot of stuff in metal. You know, like yeah. I feel like, in, in studio metal has to be like ah, live there's so much that gets you know at least it used to be this at one point um so anyways the headlining band i feel like has a lot of say in that right their man booking have a lot to say in that as well and they just kind of pick these bands together sometimes they might even pick a bigger band to like make sure that people come out to the shows and you know. yeah wow okay 
So uh, it makes sense that like a lot of it would come down to like friendships and, and even outside of the band, you know, like same agency or same tour tour manager or whatever, kind of just hooking up people they already work with. Um, and you mentioned that like, you know, a lot of it will come down to how reliable they are. So I'm guessing like there's some bands who they might like people might love, but if like if they know them in the past, like, I don't know, maybe the guys in the band were a little reckless or were partying a little too much or something like maybe you know it's it's not just all about who, who your friends are it's like you know it's like the, touring is a it's a big business thing like there's a lot of risk you know and factored in it and I, I would imagine that comes into play as well right yeah totally man there's just a bunch of variables i feel like um that's just kind of one of many so i it, it again i just think there's so many reasons why a band could or could not go on tour with another band um, yeah. i've been in a situation where you know, we were uh, considered for tours because of who was in the band and then other situations where we were not considered because of who was in the band, you know? Oh, really? Uh, wow. Yeah, that's happened with two bands that actually that I've played with. And it sucks that that's a thing, but that's what happened. Um, and it was never because of me. It was just someone else in the band. Um, and it, yeah. it always sucked to kind of be on the receiving end of that because you're just a musician also trying to go out and do stuff but um it's just how it works i guess so yeah that makes sense like you know i think of um in a day job right it's like you don't want to be working with someone who you've like had beef with in the past or whatever so um a lot of like music fans don't realize that at the end of the day all the artists are just like humans who like certain people and, and don't get along with other people and um yeah. And it's, you know, it's like you, you spend a lot of time together if you're touring with someone. You might see the same same people every day for, you know, months on end. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's kind of fun. I've always, I don't know if this is true because I, I haven't personally toured with like a pop star or anything like that. But let's take like an artist like Katy Perry or Taylor, Taylor Swift. You know, they have bands when they go play live, right? Yeah. Um, sometimes. So the people in the band for those, for those artists... Uh, everyone who's going to audition for that gig, you know they're sick, right? You know they're totally sick musicians. Yeah. But who's going to get in the bus and, like, be cool and just be a, a, a nice human being to be around for a two-month, you know, right. nationwide tour, right? Um, yeah. And not going to have an ego because usually bigger artists like that are dealing with a music director. So it's like, as a drummer, it's like, dude, you're there to – do your thing you know what i mean and yeah you don't it's not a drummer show it's katie perry right? yeah. <laughs> so, so i think uh for those kinds of situations the the playing factor is a given just because of, of that pool of musician the, the the caliber of musicians in that pool yeah. is very high it just comes down to you know if if like one member has already like experienced the other member knows that person is cool and and whatever right so yeah yeah, yeah, totally. That that seems like so logical that, that they would do that. You know, I mean, when I graduated from college, I went to school for mechanical engineering. And, and when I graduated from college and had like my first big interview, um, the person I was talking to that was interviewing me, you know, I, I think we were just chatting at the end of it. And he's like, I think we were just chatting actually the whole interview. And I was like, don't you want to like, you know, talk about anything on my resume or anything like technical related? And he's like, honestly, the fact that you're here, and you and everyone else that we brought in today, you, we already know you're brilliant. We already know that you can do the job. We just yeah. want to see if we can hang out with you for 40 hours a week. And I think most things in life <laughs> kind of kind of come down to that. It's like if you're even there, um, I mean, obviously different auditions probably have different thresholds. But like if you're there in the first place, you're probably qualified. And then after that, it's just like creativity and if people can get along with you. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd rather yeah. be, be in a band with someone who's uh, not, you know, trying to think of a, not like the next Danny Carey in, in drums, but <laughs> but I can get along with, you know, for example. Sure. The, yeah. yeah. Danny Carey's sick, by the way. Yeah. Who, who doesn't like Danny Carey? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so the other cool thing I thought would, that probably a lot of people don't hear about is how does money work in a tour? So like, uh, 
like obviously there's well actually I might be wrong about this but you know to rent out a venue for a night can you can cost twenty thousand dollars depending on the venue mm-hmm. and so it's like I'm sure it's worked differently in all the bands you've done but who's like renting out the venues um, who where does the risk fall how much do the bands get how much do like labels take a cut of if you can even talk about that yeah absolutely. <laughs> Well, okay, I can't, I don't know how true this is again today because pandemic and then yeah, I, well, my last tour was like in 2016 or something like that, you know, and, and after, no, that's not true. But point being is I slowly stopped touring, um, yeah. not on purpose, just life stuff happened and then just went that way. So I don't know how exactly the money stuff works yeah. today, but back then, uh, as far as renting out the venues, I can't really speak on that. But back then, usually the headlining package is everything is signed ahead of time, right? Like you sign a contract ahead of time. You have each band has a guarantee. Okay. At each, so um, let's say, again, we're going to talk about metal. So let's say you go out with a band like Between the Burry and Me, and they're the headlining band. They might get paid, I'm just spitting this number out, maybe $8,000 that night at each venue. Yeah. Um, all the bands under them are, are obviously going to get less. Um, sometimes the opening band I've seen as little as $75. What? <laughs> I'm not even kidding. Uh, I've, I've been on a pool where we got paid 150 and that was brutal. How, how uh, is that? Like, that's almost, that's bored. I mean, I don't want to like shame any big bands for offering that, but like, that's like borderline offensive to be asked. Like it's, it's basically like you're doing it for free. You're doing it for the cloud at that point. Yes, totally. Well, yeah, th- and that's part of the, one of the sacrifices that you kind of go through initially. Yeah. Um, I don't want to call it paying your dues because that, I don't think that's ever really fair. But unfortunately, sometimes that's just all what can be paid to the band, right? Yeah. After you consider everyone else on it. Um, so, yeah, so you have the guarantees. A lot of bands, you know, especially in that situation, will rely on merch sales. So whenever you go up and buy t-shirts, CDs, anything at the merch stand, you have no idea how much those bands appreciate that. (laughs) Because it really does. It goes, that goes directly to them. Yeah. That really goes directly to them. Um, And that helps for all kinds of stuff because when it comes to touring, let's exclude the bus, right? If you're in a, uh, in a van and trailer setup then you're either renting that van or you might own it. If you rent the van, you have the rental costs for that entire month on top of trailer rentals, right? Again, whether or not you own it doesn't really matter. That's still a cost. Yeah. There's maintenance involved. There's gas. There's hotel budgets, if you can even afford hotels. Right. I've been on tours where it's both, right? <laughs> um, luckily, towards the end there, it was there was a lot more hotels than there wasn't. But regardless definitely experienced you know having to sleep in vans a lot it sounds um, brutal absolutely brutal <laughs> yeah. and then um what else uh oh yeah so the merchandise right that you sell the band still has to buy it you know like they still have to buy the merchandise to be able to sell yeah um, what else man there's there's so many other like things to consider i feel like I mean, there's like there's like food and general life keeping people alive expenses <laughs> yeah. yeah and sometimes there might be a buyout sometimes in european uh tours uh, a lot of european countries have venues that will actually cook for the bands uk oh. is the only one that's usually pretty bad about it but <laughs> um, a lot of the other countries uh usually will cook for the bands and yeah. european tours too uh, the few European tours that I've done, you're actually on a bus, which is great. And it's split between like three or four bands and it's a double deck oh. with 22 bucks. Right? Oh, wow. Oh, snap. That's, that's intense. Yeah. yeah. So like a lot of it is packaged together. You might share sound guys, you might share merch guys. Yeah. There's all kinds of stuff to work it in such a way where like, you know, you can share because if a merch guy is going to go out on tour with one band and he's there, he or she is already getting paid this much. Um, they're just going to be happy if another band also is like, Hey, we also want to pay you to do merch. That's just right. They're standing at the same table. It's just, it's yeah. just money, right. Um, so yeah. 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 No, the, that's, that's cool to hear. Like I, I, I've heard that before. I mean, it makes sense why the merch table would be so, so important to an artist. Cause even, even online it's, it's a similar story. Like, yeah, there's, there's plenty of artists who make a 
decent living from just the raw like streaming and download and, and stuff like that income but a lot of artists rely on still online merch sales cd sales despite cds being like super unpopular some bands like sell a lot of cds still um, right and so yeah yeah i mean that's that's kind of like everyone should know that <laughs> you know if you, if you love a band buy their stuff you know? yeah totally man especially if they're touring that's like super super incredibly helpful um yeah. there used to be a list oh man i forget where i found this list it was so interesting, but around the time it had a list of all these metal bands. I mean, ranging from like, uh, you know, like Architects and Bring Me the Horizon down to, you know, BT Bam and all kind, just a huge spectrum of metal, right? Yeah. Um, and this list essentially showed you three things. It showed you the capacity of the venue that they played that night, uh, how many people actually attended, and then what they're guaranteed. And oh, there were some bands on there. I don't know. I forget if it was Bring Me the Horizon or if it was someone else. I'm pretty sure it was Bring Me the Horizon. But the guarantee was like seventy thousand dollars or something insane like that. Yeah. Uh, maybe I made that up. I don't know. I just remember being mind blown that like a band played one show and got paid that because in my head I was like, that's like. Yeah. That could be like a yearly income for, for someone, you know? You know, like if I got paid that much, I would be like doing things with it. So I didn't have to do this anymore. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) yeah, I know. If if you think about like doing one year of tours, if you're making 70 grand, it's like, you could just do that one year and then set up enough like businesses around your music that you don't even need to tour again. So I like most people I talk to that have like toured, they're like, they say that they, they liked it and they're happy they did it, but they're always like, it's the most brutal experience of your life having to to do so much. You know, it's like every night after night having to perform. And, and um, right. so I'm sure everyone's different, but a lot of people have said that to me. Yeah. I, yeah. It also depends on your touring circumstances. You know, like I, the only bus tour I've done in the States was a fill-in for like a week and a half for Marty Freeman. Ah, and yeah. I literally played, I think, eight or nine shows. It, it was it was great pay, like great pay, and it was on a bus, you know. And like I had a drum tech, and it was weird because, oh, he was amazing, um, Santi. He was great, man. He he would like set up my kit, but I I never let him set up my kit on his own <laughs> because it just felt uncomfortable. So I yeah. would like load gear in, and like I would be setting up my drums, and he'd be there. But it was cool because it just felt like two friends setting up a kit then you know yeah yeah and like the two techs would be loading out and i would also just be loading out because it felt improper to just go on the bus and hang out i don't know it was a trip yeah i can Uh, imagine that you know i'm sure eventually bands that have techs like just get to the point where they just like walk off the stage and don't touch the gear anymore but i can see how when they first start they're probably like very weird like you know it feels weird having someone like do all this stuff for you right <laughs> yeah totally i don't know man even i feel like even if i went on tour today in a bus and had text and all this stuff i would still want to like do my own thing i feel like so yeah you know, that's just my take on it um but if you're if you're in a situation like that where the pay is good that you can actually sleep somewhat comfortably later on you know um yeah touring is is a lot easier <laughs> <laughs> So uh, I guess like prior to a tour, what kind of um, preparations typically have to be done both like from an investment side and from a time perspective, aside from just like the music itself, obviously like the band has to be ready to perform, but um, you know, like all those graphics that you see bands that have performed behind them and like sometimes custom made banners or like crazy animations and stuff, like how does that normally get done? you know? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, I honestly couldn't tell you about the banner stuff, but as far as preparations before going on tour, a lot of it, uh, from my experience has been, uh, geared towards the actual live performance setup and just having that as much unlocked as possible. Um, you know, a good example is with intervals. Like when we were touring, we, uh, I remember I put together this entire rig with pro tools and (laughs) <laughs> had the back tracks set up and like all the patch changes were MIDI controlled and like, yeah, um, you know, we actually rented out space prior to every time we went out 
so that we could actually have all the monitors and like the PA system and everything like yeah. that. And the two guitar players would be up, you know, up on the rehearsal stage or whatever. And I would be at the mixer at this rehearsal spot, like mixing everything literally as if I was trying to see, and they'd be playing to a click and stuff. But the yeah. whole point of that was so that we could really dial in the sound as much as possible, you know? Right. Um, and they had, they would go on stage with cabs. So the only stage sound at that point was guitars and drums, but it was all going towards the audience. Everything else was right. So there was a lot of that kind of stuff to think about and just like the entire delivery yeah. of it, um, how quick the setup was going to be, you know, when you're, when you're there, um, as far as money wise, I mean, like I said, the van and trailer situation, Yeah, we owned a van and trailer. Um, hmm. and in pretty much every other band that I've toured with, it was it was all rented. Everything was rented. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, yeah, exactly. So there's rents, there's rental uh, expenses for a van and trailer. Again, hotels, any time for rehearsing before and where you're going to be rehearsing, that's a cost, right? Yeah. Uh, and you probably plan that stuff out months in advance, right? Mm -hmm. You know, like yeah. all the the hotels and the 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 um, practice spaces and then the van rentals and stuff like. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it just depends. Uh, a lot of times we wouldn't really plan out when and where we would get a hotel. It just kind of depended on that night. Go find a La Quinta. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, because the thing is like, you know, we can plan all that stuff all we want, but there's not, there's no telling whether or not if we play, you know, uh, I don't know, New York city and we have uh, an eight hour drive to get down the East coast to another venue are we even going to sell enough merch to be comfortable getting a hotel for all of the band members? Right. Oh yeah. Um, so it's really that night by night sometimes. Yeah, totally. And wow. it wasn't, it's not like we're getting rooms for each member either. We're talking like yeah. two rooms, you know, and like we're sleeping yeah. together. So like, yeah. <laughs> so it, it's, it's just, uh, yeah, it's like a night by night thing. Uh, obviously usually about a weekend, Luckily, with with uh, bands like Intervals and Jeff Loomis and uh, um, uh, who else, uh, Sky Harbor, just we would get to a point in one week about where we could we could start being a little bit more comfortable with things, you know? Yeah. And how we spend our money and on what. Um, so that was pretty nice. But right, is Sky Harbor still signed to uh, Basic? Is that who? It, or is that? I don't know. <laughs> Are, are, are you still in Sky Harbor right now? You are, uh, right? Uh, I'm technically not in Sky Harbor. Okay, because I know you were you were like in it, and then you weren't, and then you were, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, um, yeah. My uh, that's that's interesting. Wait, so uh, are you, which ones are you in right now? Nothing. Or, okay, so you're, you're just complete. You're a free a free man right now. That's. Great. I can imagine that's that's probably I mean because you have your solo stuff too which which like everyone that's watching now like go go check out his stuff on Spotify if if you like any of the bands we've mentioned throughout this call um, it's like really I don't even know how to describe it um, kind of like the bands we mentioned but it's it's is it all instrumental you have some songs with vocalists too right the last EP I put out had vocals and I think everything I'm I'm gonna do vocals moving forward. Yeah, yeah. So, anyways, go check it out. It's it's really good. But it must be liberating to know that you can just one hundred percent work on your own stuff. And I mean, I don't know if you're doing like, and this is probably a good transition. Um, talking about the different ways like people and bands can make money aside from just like music. Um, yeah. I, I saw a thing from Matt Halpern or something where he posted that like these are all the ways Periphery makes money. It was like a big document which kind of like blew my mind when I saw it. You know, there was like the music and there was like touring and there was merch, but then there was, you know, the, the contact libraries from Get Good. There was like the like sample packs, like most members were doing lessons. There was like, you know, licensing. There was the list went on um, yeah. for, for either for yourself or for like, you know, what you've seen in other bands. What are artists doing nowadays to, um, you know, to make a to make a living? <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, you pretty much kind of covered a lot of it with Periphery. <laughs> See, yeah. like, I have so much respect for those guys, per the Periphery guys, um, especially, you know, Nolly, Matt, and uh, Misha, because yeah. they've just 
there's they just have done so much with it the one thing i will say about periphery is that they had a sound very early on that pretty much defined an entire like subgenre of a genre right yeah um or is it a subgenre? I don't know. That doesn't even matter. Are you talk about the whole gent thing. <laughs> exactly. Yes. They, yeah, yeah. they pretty much like had the sound very early on. Everybody yeah. wanted that sound. What did they do? They figured out how to package that sound as much as possible and sell it. Amazing, right? Um, yeah. And that's huge. <laughs> what I just said is huge. Yeah. You know, production standpoint, especially the fact that you can go on, you know any other websites and buy a couple of things you can pretty much have the sound and get rolling right and you just yeah i mean you you can buy um you can buy axe effects presets because i think i mean there's also free axe effects presets from from directly from misha which i've used (laughs) um and then there's the nolly get good you can literally buy the drums from any or most periphery records dude totally look (laughs) right you buy a daw figure that out first you go, you buy one of Misha's Jacksons, you go buy Nolly's archetype, you buy the Matt Halpern <laughs> signature kit, all right? And then you go buy Gin Base or something like that. And you're like, you're just done. You don't need anything else. Yeah. You know? Yeah, so, yeah, that's that's a really good point. I didn't think about that, that, you know, I mean, I remember the first, they were the first band I heard in that wave. And a lot of people say like, oh, well, you know, Meshuggah like invented this style or whatever. But like, you know, periphery, it's like, it's like you're right like after they came out i feel like i started hearing about all these bands that were kind of doing doing the same kind of kind of obviously in their own way i'm not shaming anyone i mean i did it myself too i have have some songs that i just felt like i hear periphery and i just go play some guitar and record some (laughs) record some tracks but it's uh it's kind of brilliant you hear absolutely with all of that being said not every progressive metal band can do that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, because it's, it's pretty much, I don't want to say it's been done already, you know, because that's pretty limiting. But my point is that like, that's a very, very, very um, great scenario. Yeah. Very great scenario. Um, so to kind of compare yourselves to that can be a little bit overwhelming and not fair to yourself. Yeah. <laughs> you know? especially as a, a musician in metal specifically. Um, so moving past that, other ways to monetize, Patreon is awesome. Um, I've made some really sick friends through Patreon too. Like yeah. just these talented people uh, that, you know, signed up to my Patreon and I made like a little Discord so I can actually like connect with them a little bit more. Oh yeah. Ended up having a couple guys in there that are just super sick at writing and, and producing <laughs> and mixing and stuff. And I was like, dude, what the hell? this is great. Um, yeah, that was, that, that actually inspired me, you know, like I've gotten ideas from them for my own stuff. So that's cool. Um, you're on there, right? Uh, the Patreon, your Patreon. No, no, <laughs> no, I, I have a Patreon. Yeah. Oh, I do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, not for my music though, for the channel, but yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. So, you know, Patreon yeah. is a great, great source. Um, Another thing for YouTube, so I don't actually monetize anything on YouTube. Well, barely anything. Oh, okay. I can't. Everything, if especially if it's you know uh, a cover of something, and even if it is a playthrough, chances are I can't even monetize it. I can't even monetize. Oh, because it's for your own your own music's license through the content ID. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so a copyright claim is put on my video of my song. Yeah. And all those royalties are going to. TuneCore, which is who I, I usually put my stuff through, right? Yeah. Uh, but that's kind of how I monetize my YouTube indirectly, right? Right. Um, it yeah, it yeah. still sucks that I can't really monetize anything on YouTube. Like, I haven't made any money on YouTube. So, I mean, uh, at least – so, I use DistroKid. I know at least with them you can whitelist. I, I never do YouTube content ID because I figure if someone's going to upload my song and share it on a channel – um, I was like, well, they're giving me free promotion, but, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, like, I understand why people do, and they have the specific thing where you can whitelist certain videos. I'm, I'm sure TuneCore would, mm. it must have something. It's, it might be more that it's just a pain in the ass <laughs> to do. Yeah. See, like the the re- the any revenue I would generate on YouTube would be so little, anyways. Um, yeah. And TuneCore is already collecting all of that on their behalf, so it's it's mm. just it just works right now. So it's like yeah, I'm yeah. A- Right. Um, and TuneCore doesn't charge like a, they're like a, you're already paying 
whatever fee they charge for your music. So it's not like an extra fee or anything. Exactly. Yeah. Um, what else? Uh, so because I'm not monetizing anything on social media, um, that's not really the point of why I do videos. The point of why I do videos is more so to showcase this is my playing. That's cool. But here's my gear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, like if you hire me to play drums on your stuff, this is what you can get. You get the multi-tracks. They'll be fully edited. They'll be this, they'll be that. Here yeah. you go. Um, and it kind of cancels out the idea of having to uh, get a drummer in a recording studio Right. And all this stuff. No, you could send me a song now and I can write drums and I'll just sight read the MIDI and record it. Right. Sight read the MIDI. That's I've never heard anyone say that before, but <laughs> I know man, 2021. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, there was one project and actually, I guess the similar thing to you, like a couple of years ago, a band heard some of my old, like I used to do Lincoln park covers a good amount and other like metal vocal covers and stuff. Um, and some the band found me and they like flew me out to San Francisco to, to record on their album, which was cool. And, um, that's awesome. We, <laughs> they hired a drummer, um, cause there was no drummer there at the time, just ran like a random session drummer that the, the, um, owner of the studio knew. And he was like $2,000 to come in for two days or something. Right. And I mean, like, and he wasn't someone who had like name recognition either. I mean, I'm sure locally he did, but he wasn't someone who was like in some big band that everyone knew. So right. getting a drummer in house is like, you can pay. I mean, they're doing a lot of work, so it's definitely money well paid, but um, yeah, you know, it's cool that uh, you're right about like, that's probably the best promotion for your session work that you could ever have is all your videos. <laughs> yeah, totally, man. I mean, that's, that's literally just the point these days, you know, it's just that. Um, and it's been great because in 2020, that's pretty much all, I did like I wasn't engineering again. Yeah. I'm slow trying to get out of the engineering thing. When I say engineering, I mean, I mean like having bands come in and like do all the, you know, because a lot of times if a band wants to just come in and do a single song, I know we're starting to divert a little bit. Sorry, but no, that's cool. You want to come in and do a single song. Um, that involves me having to take down my drums, uh, you know, completely reset back up everything for, for their drummer on that. Yeah you know we do bass then we do guitar then vocals and then once they're out then i can set everything back up it's just a lot of uh time to spend tearing down all my stuff and i've done it a lot already and i don't like doing it versus just getting the work to session drum on something you know yeah um or if it, for mixing work if it was engineered elsewhere it gets sent to me to be mixed love it <laughs> yeah i can imagine <laughs> Yeah, when, when you don't have to break down your drum set and set up another band and also have them. I mean, do you do it at your house? Do you have a separate studio? Yeah, just right here. So then you have to invite potentially strangers to your home. Exactly. Which is probably yeah. very strange. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. would you say session work is like the biggest bulk of like where you like what makes you your living or like what you spend the most time in? Really? Session work and royalties from, uh, from music, which is pretty crazy to say, but yeah. Yeah. Those two things have definitely been um, majority of my income. The other thing that has been really helpful too is I do have like digital products for sale and stuff, just like drum yeah. sample packs and small stuff here and there. Um, but all of that, man, all of that really adds up over time, even if it's just a little bit here and there. Um, yeah. it, it definitely adds up over time. So again, that's another thing, you know, like selling small little sample packs of just audio files and TCIs for people, right? What's a TCI? Uh, for Slate Trigger. Ah, uh, okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so selling, you know, stuff like that, um, you know, like if they see a drum video and they hear the drum sounds, then it's like, hey, check it out. Go to my gum road. It's pretty much that, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I saw some of those those products that you had. That's that's cool. That um, that makes a lot of sense. If someone hears the drum sounds and they like it, they can just go go buy it from you. I mean, it's, it's either that or they're going to go buy someone else's drum pack. So might as well, might as well have them get it from you. Right. <laughs> yeah. My thing about drum samples is that people just love picking them up. Just, I mean, me yeah. too, you know, like I just love having drum samples. So yeah. Uh, yeah. So like making like a pack and just putting it up there for like super cheap, like something you would just buy like an EP off of iTunes for, you know, like yeah. three, four five, six, seven dollars in that range. I mean, it's, it's very, uh, Yeah it's easy for someone to just want to collect drum samples. So, 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, what the um, Get Good drums, the, the price point that they came out at in comparison to what Superior Drummer cost at, it's like, I mean, I sometimes buy those things like candy when they come out because it's like they're like 40 bucks when they launch or whatever, introductory pricing yeah. or 70 um, yeah. compared to Superior Drummer, which I think when I bought Superior Drummer 3 with the hard drive was like, what, $500 or more? It was, right. And I don't even use Superior Drummer. I always use the Get Good because I, I like it better. And I know you, you said you have yours, and I'm going to look them up after because I kind of want to pick them up too. But I mean, what, what price yeah. points did you launch yours at? Uh, ours was 89 originally, and we're starting yeah. to run sales and stuff like that. To, that's still like – that's like you know game. something you pick up on a, on a whim kind of pricing too. Yeah, the next one we're actually about to release, we're planning on doing a lot more, uh, a lot more affordable for sure. Um, but yeah. it's also going to be simpler and way less drums. So, oh, it's going to be what and way less drums? Uh, simpler, just a simpler oh, kit, yeah. simpler setup and everything. But yeah, yeah the first one again, man. I, like I was saying before, we hopped on the live thing. You know, like the, it was such a big learning curve. We sampled so many drums. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Um, and the library ended up being what? It's uh, fourteen and a half gigs of <laughs> just uh, one shot drums. Uh, <laughs> oh no, no they're multi-sampled you know like it's it's all it's a fully multi-sampled oh no i mean but it's it's 14 gigs of like just um you know like small like five second audio clips like because oh, yeah, you you yeah. have i mean for any most people probably don't realize when you're making a contact library or any sample library you don't just record you know every little note if you're doing like a musical instrument or every little drum you like record as many velocities or like how hard you hit as possible and you'll have like round robins. Yeah. And um, so when you pick up a contact library and it's like 150 gigabytes or something from Spitfire audio or whoever, that's why. <laughs> Dude, just for, okay. This is overkill. We did 22 snares. Oh, and all 22 of them, all 22, no, 21 of them have both snares on and snares off and they have, what seven velocities on just the center of the head and three velocities for rim shots. And then you have like four flam velocities four drag velocity. Anyways, yeah. is like all kinds of articulations for just the snare. And then we did all of that for snares off. Oh God. Yeah. We were there was no point in doing that much, but I'm glad we yeah. did it for the learning process. And the next one is going to be way, way simpler. Yeah. Plus one thing I didn't even think about is when people download that stuff, you know, like, that's a pain in the ass for them too. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's one reason why I like stopped using Superior Drummer and I just use the um, Get Good stuff is because like one it's like there's not like a million versions of everything. It's this you know I use the Modern and Massive one so much because it's right. made for it sounds really good in the type of well, I mostly use it for like one of my side projects which is more like rock and metalish. It sounds really right. good for that style. I don't have a million options. It's just the default kit sounds great and. Um, right. Also, when I upgrade my computer, it's a super easy file to install on your computer and Superior Drummer. I have to like go find my hard drive where <laughs> it had it and or download like the 250 gigabytes or whatever it is. Um, yeah. And that is just native access. I don't know. Superior Drummer has its pluses too. Like I still use Easy Drummer like oh, all yeah. the time because it's super easy. Literally, it's easy to just toss up and like write drums really quick or something yeah but i'm also a drummer and chances are if i'm writing drums or something they're just eventually going to be tracked anyways like on on, on live drums yeah uh, but yeah i see what you mean though like it, it, like we did the whole native access thing too right so yeah that makes um, it a lot easier at least it makes it easier but it also has its issues because native access needs i didn't know this until afterwards but Native access basically needs an X amount of space in order to download and unpack. And it's like way more space than what the actual library is. Yeah. So very deceiving, you know, like you might say 15, 14 and a half gigs in native access when you go and enter your license in, but then, yeah. you know, you might need like, it might be like you need to free up 60 more gigs or something like, I don't know. It's yeah. I think it's normally, do you need double normally almost? Cause it has to like download the raw files and then like, uncompress all of them and so it'll end up yep. being like twice as big <laughs> yeah exactly it's literally just for some unpacking operations and then it, it and then it goes away yeah so yeah 
<laughs> good good times with sampling. <laughs> so um, with uh, with with Sky Harbor, were, were you with, were you with them at the very start? Or, I mean, not at the very no. start, but like when when the first album came out. I believe you're playing on that album, right? No, that's all program drums. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Right. Yeah, I joined the band after. So it was just one guy, it was Keshav, and then he had everything already finished up for that album. I yeah. he, he told me on a couple of occasions that he tailored some of the drum parts based on how I did them in my videos, but I don't know if that's true or not. Yeah. He had already finished everything. So the last thing I was going to do was be like, hey, <laughs> can I a lot of drums and you mix them, you know? Um, yeah. He did a good job with programming them then. I mean, I, you know, I'm sure if I asked some of my, my drum friends, they, you know, one of my friends, Mike, he's, um, every time I listen to, uh, we, we both like a new band or something, you know, if I say anything like, oh, like the drums sound really sick in this, he'll be like, yeah, they're programmed by the way. I'll never be able to tell. But since he's a drummer, he's always like, yeah, those ones are real. Those ones are fake. And <laughs> I can't even tell all the time, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, I don't, it doesn't even bother me anymore that I can't tell. I'm just over it. But yeah. sometimes it's pretty obvious in the drum parts. When you when you hear some like ridiculous stuff or like you hear a blast beat with all rim shots or like <laughs> you hear like a ride, a snare and a china, and, you know, and like yeah. on hunt or something. I don't know, you know, silly stuff like that. Then you can tell. Sure. But with Sky Harbor, Acacia was just uh, that's one thing I will say. All the majority of the bands that I've been in, uh, the guitarists that I'm working with have pretty good uh, drum brains, hmm. like a really good understanding of, of just grooves and stuff like that, you know? So that's yeah. been really helpful because it, it's not like I've had to learn anything too out of, uh, left field. Yeah. Yeah. That may, a lot of guitarists are really bad at it too. I mean, I'm sure you've heard, I'm sure you've had people like send you demos or whatever. So you probably have heard the horrors of, <laughs> of oh, or, or, the, or at least the boring ones where it's like every single song they do is, um, you know, four, four, uh, hands with the bass drum, just doing exactly for them guitars doing no matter what. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's that. There's also the funniest one too, is when like all kinds of crazy stuff in a guitar run is just accented on all these effect symbols. And it's just like, sometimes <laughs> I don't even have that many symbols on my kit. You know, it's like, yeah, a drummer just wouldn't do that. But I don't know. The same could be said for my music, you know, like some of the, stuff I write on guitar is just like, yeah, yeah. right. So. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. I mean, I, I forget what song it was. I think it was the first album you released. I heard it and I was like, wow, that sounds like you could never play it on a guitar. <laughs> just like the way the notes were it'd be like impossible or, or very uncomfortable yeah. to play, but totally 100%. Yeah. So do you have any, um, I guess for any, for any of your, the bands you've worked with, um, have any were there any of them that you were there from like maybe not day one but before like a project was out so from like this from the point where they had to like start promoting their new project at all like or, or were you just were you always kind of jumping in at a later date guy harbor and intervals i'd say were like the two where i would consider myself like original members especially intervals yeah. for sure um but both of those projects were still one guitar player and I don't think they necessarily expected it to turn into anything has become now kind of thing. Yeah. Um, which is cool. So, so I think that was just the vibe back then with metal, you know, like people didn't know what the hell was going to happen. Yeah. And the internet was still fresh. <laughs> right. I mean, cause those bands, I mean, when, when I think of like how, where they came from, it's like, it almost seems like they just kind of they grew the old-fashioned way where they just they shared some stuff online and people dug it over the couple years like i think periphery it was like bulb sharing demos on what, yeah. what, what website was it again sound click yeah sound click that's what it was <laughs> which is like not even a thing anymore i remember perusing that site back in the day but like um i have a folder somewhere i'm pretty sure on like an old hard drive of all of the ones that because there was one Someone just compiled all of the demos into like one download file and everyone was just like, you are a god. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I mean, he turned that into, into you know, periphery. And um, yeah. I don't remember when I first heard of Sky Harbor, it was like, I think I heard of it because I really liked Tesseract, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. 
And so I was like, oh, Dan Tompkins is in this project and Dan Tompkins, my favorite vocalist. Um, and then, uh, you know, it's, it was talked about how it was online. People were bouncing files around. And I thought that was really cool because most of the stuff I did was online, but I don't remember how, like, how did that even get popular? Like, how do people hear of it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, what well, did they, did they, were they signed from day one just because of the connections that people had or, or did they like, how they get the word out? I honestly forget how that happened for okay for one thing i think the uh indian metal scene was what helped a lot because i think those you know those kinds of bands in the indian metal scene were still pretty unique at the time and yeah um you know they there's just a whole metal scene in india that a lot of you don't being in the states you don't realize that other countries just have their things <laughs> Yeah. right the yeah. people in the u.s are very very all about the u.s normally <laughs> yeah literally we just live in an echo chamber like on a daily basis so we don't realize yeah. like countries like india like china all these places have like their own music scenes for stuff so yeah. i don't know maybe that was part of it for uh sky harbor i was doing videos i don't know if that helped you know at all i know we we did play a couple of festivals at first and then you know uh, started yeah. touring and stuff and did as much as we could and where did where did Keshav come from is that how you say his name by the way Keshav Keshav, Keshav. Keshav. okay yeah. where, where like what was his background from then uh he he uh he's from New Delhi okay I, originally from Kashmir pretty sure because I just remember thinking like how did this like random guy from India get in contact with Dan Tompkins like vocalist of Tesseract yeah. <laughs> like I don't know that story to be honest, but I mean, I'm yeah. assuming it probably went down just like how I got in touch with him because I was just like, Hey, can I do yeah. YouTube videos? And he was like, yeah, man. So <laughs> the internet was different back then, man. <laughs> like, yeah. 